We are in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. That's where we have reached in our journey across the epistle that Paul wrote to the Corinthians for the second time. There was a flurry of correspondence between Paul and the Corinthians, but in Scripture, God chose for us to have two letters. We are in the second letter to the Corinthians. If you'll find your Bible and open it there and open it in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And let me tell you on the front side that I am enormously grateful for the last few weeks, we began in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 as Paul, in his long letter to the Corinthians, begins to deal with them about the practical matter of their financial giving. You've been enormously encouraging, and I've been surprised at how kind and generous you've been in giving feedback to me as we've gone through these passages together. I'm grateful but not surprised. This is a church that has taken it into its heart to hear what God has to say and collectively as a congregation do our best to obey Him. Because we're a family, because we're a body, we're a congregation, not everyone is in the same place, but you should know if you're new to, if you're new to our church, at the heart of the majority of the people who come to worship here is a simple desire to know what God says and then obey it. And I'm especially grateful that that's true, and I especially appreciate your encouragement when we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 2 Corinthians chapter 9, because the topic of 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 2 Corinthians chapter 9, do you remember? What is it? Money. Boy, do people get nervous when pastors start talking about money, and with good reason. A lot of pastors have used the gospel as a means of illicitly enriching themselves, not of representing Jesus and having the freedom to serve Him vocationally, but of creating sometimes some very opulent lifestyles, of making choices with money and their personal lives and their bodies that would be shameful in a secular corporation to say nothing of a church that's supposed to belong to God. So I appreciate that you will take the Bible at face value let it search you, let it examine you. Let me encourage you on the front side. Don't assume on the front side that you're already doing everything God wants you to do in every area. Every single one of us, beginning with me, can grow. We can all learn. We can all change. There are all have things that we should turn away from and turn to God with. There are areas that will doubtless need correction Areas where we need guidance, areas where the obedience of God to God is not yet fully realized in our lives. And when it comes to money, it's not coincidental that Paul took two whole chapters to talk to the Corinthian church about their giving. If you remember the setting, and it's a lot to ask, so let me just remind you where we are. The Corinthian church has made a promise a year earlier that they are going to do what many other churches, many impoverished churches in their region are doing. They are going to take an offering and send it to the relief of poor Christians in Jerusalem. Churches north of them have done just that. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, when Paul gets down to the practical matter of talking to the Corinthians about their giving, he says, let me tell you what has happened in the poor churches to your north. They begged for the privilege of participating in the offering, and they did that because first they gave themselves to the Lord. And at the heart of everything the Bible says about money, that may be the most important lesson. God does not need your money. He's not a fundraiser. He's 
is not in need himself. He is trying always to get your heart to fully trust him with all that you have, including your money. The believers to the north of the Corinthians had given themselves, Paul says, first to the Lord, and it seems that Paul may have been reluctant to ask them to participate because of their own poverty, but he says they pleaded with us that they would be allowed to be part of the offering. They sent the money. They're all in. Corinthians, you've been promising to do this now for a year. So he talks to them about their giving. He talks to them about the financial integrity that the spiritual leaders who are going to handle that money and travel with it and take it to Jerusalem are going to have to show themselves because often in the local church you hear guys like me, pastors and Bible teachers, teach what the Bible says about giving. It's just as important that they teach at the same time what the Bible teaches generally right beside the giving is the integrity required of the people who handle the money. To do less than treat the people, the money that the people of God has given with anything but the utmost integrity is an offense to God himself. We can go wrong in one of two directions, when we fail to give as a congregation or when the people who make decisions on behalf of the congregation mishandle that money. Paul addresses both. And now in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, he gets down to explaining to them all the good things that are going to happen when they finally give what they've promised. And that's what I'd like to talk to you about this morning. I'd like to talk to you and explain to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 9 what happens when we give. Because the biggest misconception that people have regarding giving is that when you give it, it's just gone. It's gone out of your checking account for sure. If you write a check, if you authorize a withdrawal, if you bring money and give it into a church collection, it's gone for you and If you think it's just gone, that's it, I have no idea what's going to happen to it, it probably won't make any difference, it's just this very mechanical thing where I give money and nothing happens after that, I want you to walk with me through 2 Corinthians chapter 9 because according to Paul, a lot of good things happen. In fact, I was surprised, even though I've read this passage for decades, I was surprised by how many things Paul says happen when we give. Look with me, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and I've arrived in verse 6. Paul says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. One of the challenges of this passage, and you've been hearing me lament about it for several weeks now, is that this Bible translation, which I'm using, which is the English Standard Version, very serious, very solid translation, that's why we use it. It sticks very closely, as closely as it can in the English language to the original languages of the Bible. Here's the drawback to that. Every once in a while, the passages get a little clunky, and the scholars who decided to put it into English for us use language that nobody uses anymore, or very few people use in 2023. Verse 6 alone is one of those passages. 
The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Have you used the word sow or reap recently? How about the word bountifully? Bounty is paper towels, right? <laughs> Premium paper towels, that's all bounty is. What does it mean? Let's, let's have, I know this tends to be a monologue. Give me a little feedback. What does it mean to sow? To plant. It's an agrarian term. It's a farm term. What does it mean then to reap? To harvest. Wish they would have said that. What does bountifully mean? Generously, abundantly. So what Paul's saying here, he's drawing on something that they would have been familiar with, likely, at least in their family, for generations. If you plant a great deal, you can expect a generous harvest in return. If you plant just a little bit, you can expect little coming back to you. Have any of you ever had the misfortune of being on a farm when it was uh, time to work on the farm? I say misfortune because on my mother's side, uh, I've got a bunch of kin from Kansas, lovely spots like Elkhart, Kansas, and Garden City, Kansas. I mean, they're feeding the rest of the country. God bless them. But you don't want to be there when there's work to do. And guess when there's work to do? All the time. I think it was strategic. My parents took me to the farm at, on occasion so that I could see work and unfortunately get drafted into the work. That gave me a deep desire to learn how to do something that wasn't farming. And I watched a little bit of planting, and I watched much more. It seems like we would always go at harvest time. But if you've ever considered or think about how people plant, if they intend to feed people, the farmer has two choices. One is to take from a little bag of seed each seed individually, Look at it very carefully, open up a little furrow in the earth, and very carefully as if he were putting a diamond in a ring, put the seed into the soil, and then gather the earth around it, take a little cup of water, sprinkle it over it, say, be well and prosper, little seed. May you give us something worth eating a few months from now. And then he moves six inches over, takes another little seed, puts it in can you imagine anybody planting like that? How do they plant? They pour it on. Someone who wants a harvest plants as much as the land will bear. The only limit is not overplanting so that the plants or the trees choke and fight each other. Now, why is that? There's no joy in planting. There's only really one happy time on the farm. The only happy time on the farm is when the harvest starts to come in and all the work, all the sacrificing. Nobody is into farming for the plowing. Nobody's into farming for the irrigation. Nobody is into farming for the weed control and the worrying about the weather and all of the different things that go into cultivating the soil. Farming is all and only about one thing. It's all about the harvest. And to put this, take this out of the metaphor, remember the Corinthian church, which appears to be a talented and gifted church, appears to be a church with money in the ancient world, has been given an opportunity to do what their poor brothers and sisters all around them have been doing, 
Churches across the Roman Empire with much less to give have been faithfully sending sacrificial offerings to feed their poor Christian brothers in Jerusalem. The Corinthians have been talking about it, arguing about it, delaying it for a full year. And the only thing that Paul wants us to know in these first two verses is this, generous giving leads to abundant results. If we will generously give, God will bountifully provide something good that comes out of that giving. And last week you had an example of it. If you were here last week, I won't get into his whole story, but some of the, because some of the work he does is sensitive and we did not broadcast everything that he showed us. But last week we were privileged to have one of our missionaries in a difficult place from halfway across the world that told us, I did not know this, I did not know what he reported. I remember us deciding to do it. I did not know the effect until he showed up. Early in the pandemic, his people were literally starving because the government locked them in and most of them were subsistence workers that have to eat a day to eat that day, have to work a day to eat that day. He told you, you sent $10,000 halfway across the world and fed 15,000 people. Simply put, had we sent less, we would have fed less. I remember talking to him about that decision and about the need, and I was thrilled to see the pictures that he showed you last week of a church turned into a feeding center with food covering every square inch of their large auditorium. Generous giving leads to abundant results. You did that. I want to gratefully tell you that you do good every day through your financial giving. The ministry, the influence, the extension of Christ radiates from this corner. And what Paul is after here is not to shame them into anything or get them into something like bill paying. He wants them to ask the right question. Look in verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. This may be the simplest way I can explain it to you. Legalism asks, how much do I have to give? That's how you pay your taxes, isn't it? Won't you take every deduction you're offered? Have you ever, when it's on the tax return and it says, you know, you're entitled to deduct this much or to deduct that much, have you ever said, ah, I don't need any of that. They can have it all. I know I'm taxed at 15%, but I'm, I love this country. I'm just going to let them tax me at the 50% rate. Did you know that the treasury will take donations? Every tax return says, if you would like to send a little extra, it's right here. Those of you who feel cheated because you got a nice refund this year, I have news for you. You can send the whole thing back. Nobody does. Why? Because when it comes to paying your taxes, we're all trying to do our civic duty, keep the law, stay out of jail, but love has no part in it. We're only doing what is required. Listen to this again. Each one must give, not pay. 
Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Legalism asks, how much do I have to give? Love asks a different and a better question. And that question always is, how much good can I do? That's the mindset of the Christian giver. That is the mindset specifically of this congregation. We are always looking for opportunities to do as much good to as many people as we possibly can. Then Paul goes on, verse 8. And this is a promise to you. This is a promise made to cheerful givers. Never think of your giving as paying your religious dues to God. You have been welcomed into the family of God. Your Father has blessed you with things He expects and instructs you from what He has provided to be a generous giver as He is a generous giver. God loves a cheerful giver specifically because when God sees one of His children giving cheerfully, God sees His own heart in that person. God gives cheerfully. God does not give grudgingly. God does not give under obligation. When the Father sends the Son and the Son willingly comes and the Spirit comes to give new life, every person in the Trinity, all of God rejoices in the gift of God Himself. And here's the promise made to those cheerful givers. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. That's Paul quoting his Bible, Psalm 112, verse 9. He who supplies seed to the sower, that's God, And bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Here's a promise made to you. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. What's the second thing that happens when you give? When you give, it's not just gone. A second good thing happens. God will provide what we need so that we can keep doing good. I know these paragraphs are dense, that's why I'm trying to read them slowly to you. But what Paul said is, Corinthians, if you will do what you promised, if you will act like generous Christians and give to your impoverished brothers over in Jerusalem, God will then take over. And God will, if you'll go back with me to verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Look at verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. In other words, if you do the right thing in giving, God will provide for you so that you can keep on doing good and you can keep on giving. Imagine this with me, if you will. I'm going to ask you to envision and imagine a miracle, okay? Your 13-year-old son says, Dad, I've noticed our backyard is a little overgrown with weeds. And in fact, They've crept up through some cracks in the cement around our our patio, and that looks kind of ghetto to me. 
And they're even, they're woven through the bricks. And the grass is kind of actually poking through our fence and going through to the neighbor's side. And that, that must be annoying to him. Dad, is it okay with you? Could, I've, I've been saving some money to deal with this. Would you, uh, could you give me a ride over to Home Depot and teach me what to buy? And if you'll tell me what to buy, and I'll buy it, but if you'll just tell me what to buy, I'd like to spend the next several summer afternoons cleaning up our backyard and making that thing look like better homes and gardens. You imagined a miracle, didn't you? If your child asked to do that, would you take him to Home Depot? Of course. Wise parents empower obedience. Wise parents love obedience. We're raising our kids to obey. We're raising them to do the right thing. We want them to be righteous people. That's what we pray for. That's what the whole point is about. And God is not an unwise father. When God, your heavenly father, sees you do the right thing and extend something that is so unnatural until you meet Christ and he changes your heart and you extend your hand in generosity, your heavenly father already told you he loves a cheerful giver. He will be delighted with what you are doing and he promises himself that he will continue to make his grace abound in your life. He will supply everything that you need so that you can continue to do every good work. What I'm trying to tell you is simply this. God doesn't need to raise money. He uses our giving to raise his children. Parents who have no need of the simple things their children give them delight to receive them. There are things in my office upstairs that are meaningless to everybody else except to me because my children gave them to me. They gave them to me when they were little kids with little materials that they were provided and sometimes that they purchased to hand make me some little gift. If I get hit by the proverbial OCTA bus that we're so often mentioning around here and next Sunday you need another, pa another senior pastor... Somebody might clean out my office and come to some of those little trivial things and go, huh, that's weird, wonder why he kept that clunk straight in the trash. Trash to everybody else. Meaningless ephemera to a lot of people, a treasure to me because it was given to me by one of my sons. That's how your heavenly father looks at your giving. He owns everything. He's not in need of anything. In his goodness, he's provided some of his riches to you and invited you into what he's doing in the world. He's not trying to raise money. He uses and teaches his children to give, to grow them up, to have a heart like his. Look in verse 12. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the, saint, but is of the saints, in other words, the Christians in Jerusalem, the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Look carefully at the first part of verse 12. It says something important that pastors are sometimes prone to overlook when we teach about giving. The ministry of this service is supplying the needs of the saints. Never lose sight of the fact that for all of its spiritual benefits, financial giving does a lot of practical good in the world. 
That's the third thing I find, the third good thing I find that happens when we give. Number three, the needs of others will be met. People, our missionary told us last week, 15,000 people were fed. That happened. Why did that happen? That happened because you gave. Had you not given, we would not have fed them. Somebody else would have provided for them. I trust in God's economy, in God's big family of churches, somebody else would have taken on that responsibility and enjoyed that privilege because we had the capacity to give. We gave and 15,000 people were fed. The needs of others are actually met. It doesn't just make a spiritual difference. It makes a practical, visible, earthly blessing in the world as well. This is all across the New Testament. You've heard me read a great deal of Scripture this morning. I'd like you to read with me now. Read with me Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. This is a whole other family of churches in a different part of the Roman Empire. The theme is the same. Don't get tired of doing what is right. Keep giving and serving, and God will bring in the harvest. Read it with me, please. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Notice the entire context is giving. It's sacrifice. It's doing good for the sake of others. And the obstacle that Paul seems to point out is that you'll get tired of it, that you'll get weary in well-doing. He says, listen, Galatians, the only danger is not whether the harvest is going to come in. God will make sure of that. God will give you a good harvest in due time because farming takes time. In due time, you will enjoy the harvest. The only question is whether you're going to get tired of doing a good thing and give up. Let's not do that. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Go back to verse 12 with me, because I cut Paul off in mid-sentence. The ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. In other words, as their needs are met, something is going to happen. Their tables are going to be filled, and when they see their lives change, their bodies fed, the people we help are then going to give thanks and praise to God. That's the fourth good thing that happens when Christians are givers. The people who are blessed by that giving will then turn and give thanks and praise to God. And I'm living proof of that because my parents are still missionaries after nearly 53 years of service in Mexico. It's where I grew up. It's where I returned to serve the Lord along with my wife and family. I started raising our missionary support. Sharice and I started our, raising our missionary support 25 years ago. The supporters have long since stopped my missionary support because I've been here with you almost 18 years. That giving stopped for them. I wrote them a letter saying, thank you very much. We're going home to our home church in Huntington Beach, California. The money you've been dedicating to us can now go to another missionary. It's been 18 years since I've received a dime from a supporting church, but they'll be in my heart forever. Anybody know where Mound City, Kansas is? Ever heard of it? 
one single person. I'm hoping in all the people that come to three services a day, one person will have heard of Mountain City, Kansas. No? Okay, one, excellent. One person. In the many people who will come to church today, one person knows where Mountain City is. The reason you haven't heard of it is it's 15 minutes from a stoplight. There's literally nothing there. My supporting pastor friend there, Joe Perkins, who will be a brother and a friend for life, and I often joked that in Mexico, I was five minutes from Walmart. He needed to drive for over an hour. Now, what happened in Mound City, Kansas? Why is that so special to me? Why are Joe and Terry Perkins so precious to us? Because we had one of those providential encounters where missionary meets senior pastor and those farmers and hard laborers got behind our church and sent a group of men and women with power tools who sent thousands of dollars ahead of themselves. And once every summer, they came for a week and worked harder than I've ever seen anybody work in my entire life. The only danger with the farmers from Kansas is that I wouldn't be organized enough to give them enough to do because they worked so hard and so fast, they were generally doing about 50% more than I thought any human being could do. And the first year they went, they finished what I thought was more than enough work. They finished it in five days, and we had two days left over. And I said, you want to go some tourist stuff? That's not why we came. You want to go see Pancho Villa's house? We don't care. We came here to work. That's true. Pancho Villa's house is in the city where I grew up. They had little to no interest in the tourism. They had come to work, and for that reason, the people they bless, they maintain relationships and trade emails with bad English and bad Spanish going forth, back and forth through the internet across the border, where American pastors are doing their best to read broken English and Mexican missionaries are doing their best to write their best English so that the American pastor can understand them. Those relationships have endured for decades and will go on for as long, I believe, as both churches exist because when we help people... God turns their heart to himself, and they give thanks and praise to him. Church put it very simply and practically. God often wants us to be the answer to another person's prayer. And people who truly believe the gospel always grow into givers. That's what Paul's telling us here in verse 13. By their approval of this service... They will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. You've heard my lament if you've been through this whole series that this particular translation in these particular two chapters is a little clunky. You've heard me complain about that? Verse 13 might be a shining example of clunky English. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. What does that mean? Let me read it to you in a different translation. The CSB says, because of the proof provided by this ministry, in other words, you're giving, 
because of the proof provided by your giving, they will glorify God for your obedient confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone. If you want the very rough Gardner paraphrase, Paul is saying when the Jerusalem believers receive your offering, they're going to rejoice because they're going to understand you're really Christians, same as them. They're going to understand that when you take some of your hard-earned money to never see it again on this earth that's going to feed them and their families, that is submission and obedience to Jesus. That's one way that you're confessing, in other words, declaring, proclaiming the good news. People who truly believe the gospel always grow into givers. It seldom happens automatically, and if you've been a Christian for a long time and a reluctant giver or an occasional giver or an accidental giver, don't be hard on yourself. You've given me a lot of trust in this series through the whole book and particularly in these two chapters that I'm not after your money, and I'm not. As God is my witness, I'm not. I want you to understand from these two chapters the same thing you understand from all chapters of the Bible, simply what God says to you, what God wants you to do, and what God promises to do for you in return. People who truly embrace the gospel eventually grow into givers because if the good news of a generous God has saved your life and secured your soul for heaven, eventually the realization of all that that means and how good God is, that He really is the one who supplies everything to everyone, will give you the confidence enough to be a physical financial giver on earth while you wait for the redemption of your soul. It's a curious thing that we would so readily trust Jesus to save our souls and give Him so little control over our budget. People who really believe the gospel grow into givers. In verse 14, uh, verse 14 tells me that some, another good thing will happen. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 14, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. In other words, the people that we helped will also pray for us. When they are blessed by our generosity, God knits the hearts of giver and receiver together. Relationships are much more easily built by deeds rather than they are by words. When we make the gospel practice of generosity and giving come alive and we make somebody else the recipient of something that cost us a great deal, a relationship is built there. They are reminded of God. They praise and thank God for what they've received. They, they praise and thank God for us. And according to verse 14, they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. And then there's a final verse. An exclamation point. Paul's a masterful writer, humanly speaking. He's brilliant. And he's more than brilliant. He's being carried along, according to the Bible itself, he's being carried along by the Holy Spirit, God telling him what to say. The ideas, the truth, the Word of God is coming to life for ordinary people in Corinth 2,000 years ago. At the end of these two letters of doing something so delicate and so painful, dealing with them about their long-neglected promise to be generous to people who are suffering and possibly starving, Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15, thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. 
It's an exclamation point. It's a big finish. And I'll close the sermon with a question for you. After teaching them about this very mundane, seemingly ordinary act of giving that will require them to decide when to do it and how much to give, and every individual is going to have to decide how to respond to the grace of God. In 1 Corinthians 16:2, he told them to bring it with them to church when they gathered on Sunday so that no last-minute collections would have to be made. But every giver is free before the Lord. Give as you wish, not under obligation, not grudgingly, not under compulsion. Don't ask the legalistic question, but all of you decide what to give individually as a church, collectively decide what you will want to do. It's been very practical. And he's alternating between the practical, simple discipline of giving the money and showing them in eternity all the good that God has promised to do if they will do the earthly giving. And then at the end, he says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. My question for you, what is that? What is the inexpressible gift of God? Jesus, His Son. That's where it all ends. That's the final good thing that happens. When Christians are givers and when Christians are receivers, whichever side of the equation you happen to be on, but particularly when we are generous givers, number six, we will all remember the grace of God who gave His Son for us. That's what fuels giving. The fuel for generous giving is our shared joy over the gospel. What God is doing in this church is bringing people together who are delighted that God loves them the way we've heard in our Bibles today who are astonished that God would send His Son to die in the place, live a righteous life in the place of our sinful lives, trade His righteousness for our sin and our wickedness, and trade lives with us so that we are now in Christ. We enjoy His righteousness. We enjoy His holiness. That's what's driving all of this. It's not a fundraising campaign. Paul's not trying to make budget. He's trying to help Christians remember and proclaim the good news that Jesus died for sinners, such as him, such as the Corinthians, such as the Jewish believers in Jerusalem who are now suffering for the sake of Christ. What I'm trying to tell you simply, church, all these things, God does a lot of good when we are cheerful givers. Let's pray together.